life really is a roller coaster ride. And anybody who thinks that life is a straight lineup has a lived life. Indianapolis media icon Jeff Smullyan describes his life in business as an upside down ride. And he wrote a book about it. Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. The Ups, Downs, and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. More on how driving his daughter to school inspired the book. Smullyan's early days as a pioneer in sports talk radio, his time as owner of the Seattle Mariners, and much more on the Business and Beyond podcast. because I know that there were some some moments in your career, some years when you were maybe a little cloudier than other years, but... but <laughs> I was here at 17, I remember like three of them. Yeah. But, but you were here four years, I, I, I say, who's the tall guy? <laughs> a rewind to 1991. Don Imus and David Letterman, two of Jeff Smullyan's protégés, laughing it up on national television. Imus and Letterman aren't the only unknowns Smolian took a chance on back in the day. He is considered the godfather of sports talk radio. Smolian once owned the Seattle Mariners and almost bought an NBA franchise. After 40 years in broadcasting, Smolian got out, is now pursuing new business ventures in video gaming, and he's added author to his resume. And I'm indeed pleased to be joined by... Radio pioneer, broadcaster, entrepreneur, community leader, and now author. Actually uh, released a book last year. Jeff Smalley. And Jeff, uh, how are you? I'm great, Gary. How are you? Good, good. Good to see you. Want to talk about the book. Uh, I know it's gotten a lot of attention, a lot of great stories in that book that I know folks will be interested in. But before we get into that, since our last conversation, I should mention you're our first two-time Business and Beyond podcast uh, guests. So uh, wow. you're. I don't, I don't know what that gets you, but uh, uh, since the last time we spoke, you've had a lot going on. Uh, sold uh, MS Communications. You've now got MS Corporation. Talk first of all. Talk about the sale, the radio and TV assets, and that uh, that whole process and uh, how well, that went. Well, we made a decision, and we love the media business, especially the radio business. But after forty years, we realized that. The especially the radio industry, the magazine industry were not growing, and we really wanted to get into some things that had a chance to grow. So we were fortunate enough to sell. The company paid off almost two billion dollars of debt. Uh, we have no now no debt, money in the bank. So we're launching some new ventures, and we just announced an agreement with our shareholder with our board to take a vote to our shareholders, where we will buy out the the class A or the public sort of quasi public shareholders for a price of either six, six fifty or seven dollars and twenty-five cents per share over the next couple of years. And then when that's done, I own all the class B shares. That's what's left. And we'll go on. So it's a it's a great return to capital to our shareholders. And yet it allows me and our management team to uh to run some businesses and hopefully uh grow the future. Well and you talk about growth businesses. You've made some moves here. I know there was a a major uh, investment in, I believe, it was an, an Israeli company that yeah. uh, that what they yeah. insert advertising right into video games. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, it's really an amazing business. We found it, fell in love with it. Um, a friend of mine at Sony was one of their early investors, and uh, they've really cracked the code 
on inserting real-time ads and video games. Nobody had ever done it before. The only way you could do ads is either pop-up ads would stop the game or insert ads when the game is built. This way they can do real-time. And if you and your son are playing the same game, you'll see different ads than you do. Wow. So we loved yeah. business. Everybody who looked at it loved it. So we took the lead in the, in the next round and we'll help them. They're developing uh, headquarters in the United States and uh, our team will provide uh, advice and guidance to them. And we love the investment. We think it's got a remarkable opportunity to grow. Yeah. Do you miss the the, the broadcasting business? That was your certainly your passion. You were a pioneer in the radio business, to be sure. That's been your your passion. Do you miss it at all? I miss it a lot. I miss the friends most of it all. I just got back from vacation where I spent a lot of time with old friends of the business. Uh, the business changed. It changed a lot. And the problem is when an industry doesn't grow uh, and it declines slightly every year, it just really takes the joy out of it. Uh, as I've said, Emmis was built by a group of people who could look at a hill and put a plan together and take the hill. In a business that declines every year, Gary, you know, those same people look at a hill and say, boy, there's a boulder on that hill that's going to roll down and cause an avalanche to kill me. So yeah. I want to get our group to look at businesses that could grow and whether we could start taking some hills again. We got into the uh, the author business. You know, a lot yeah. of people talk about, uh, you know, writing a book one day and and uh, a lot of times it doesn't doesn't happen. You you took the yeah. leap and you did it. What what was the impetus for writing your book? Never ride a roller coaster upside down. Hey, Gary, I did it at, at the behest of my youngest child, who's now a freshman, just finished her freshman year at Georgetown. But I would drive her to school every day from kindergarten until, until she fired me when she got her driver's license. <laughs> uh, and we just talk about life. I'm a big lesson guy, and all my kids will laugh and say, Dad, say there's a lesson here and there's a lesson here. And she said, Dad, the stories you tell around those lessons, you got to write down. you got to write a book. And for fun, during COVID, I started writing. Uh, it took me only less than a couple of months and I sent it off to a couple of friends and I said, you know, you really got a book here. Yeah. So one of my friends said, I got a great editor. My husband just did a book. He had the world's best editor and the editor and I worked together and we put together a proposal and sample chapters and found an agent and the agent found a publisher and the publisher signed us up. And, uh, it's been a very, very gratifying experience. I think the thing that's most gratifying is the people who've read it, I get calls from everywhere, people I know, people I don't know, who just said, love the book, and it made me laugh out loud a lot of times. So I'm yeah. proud of it. <laughs> the title, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, The Ups, Downs, and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. Great title. How did you come up with it? Well, originally, my title was going to be, what have we learned? Because my managers yeah. would meet, i say, okay, guys, what have we learned today? And when I thought about life, life really is a roller coaster ride. And anybody who thinks that life is a straight line up has a live life because it's ups and downs. And I realized that I had done so many crazy things that it, I, most of my ride was upside down, that the title just sort of came to me one day. And I said, that's, yeah, I like the title. And uh, there we are. You talk about the stories and there are lots of them. This may be an unfair question, but is there, well, is there a story that has gotten the most reaction or more reaction from, you know, feedback that you've gotten either from your radio days, baseball ownership days, whatever the case might be? Well, the one I like telling most, I think, is fun. It always gets a laugh. Um, we invented, I, I have a favorite saying, the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. I've been on both sides. So one chapter is idiot to genius, the start of all sports radio, which nobody wanted to do. Yeah. Jim Langley called it the Vietnam War of Amos. None of our guys were coming, so you know well. 
Yeah. It was one of the people who voted it down and then they felt sorry for me. So they did it. And then <laughs> when we put it on the air, it was a disaster. And then lo and behold, we bought the NBC stations. We put Don Imus on. We put Mike at the Mad Dog. And it became one of the iconic stages in America. So I went on that project from idiot to genius. And then the next project was buying the Seattle Mariners, where I was kind of the boy wonder. You know, one of my friends watched me sign autographs for 30 minutes after a game one night. He said, any society that demands your autograph is a society which is in great jeopardy. <laughs> But my probably my favorite story is a dear friend, I can name him now, Jerry Reinsdorf, who's mentioned in the book a few times, was in Seattle one day. And he said, you know, you're the guy who invented the format that ruined all of our lives. Because before sports radio, you if, if somebody ripped a player or an owner or a manager in a column in the newspaper, you read it eight in the morning, you put it down, that was it. But with sports radio, you were under a microscope 24-7. Yeah. And you could be going in the ballpark or coming out of the ballpark or sometimes even during the game and hear, hear people ripping you. And he said, the fact that the guy who invented this format is now a sports owner. <laughs> and I'm listening to him as I'm driving around Seattle. And one of the hosts is just tearing you apart. He said, I'm not a religious guy, but the fact that you are now getting torn apart by your own invention proves to me there's a guy. So that was one story. <laughs> yeah. there, there are so many. Yeah, it's been a, it's been so much fun. Yeah, yeah. Sports radio is a uh, is a format, a genre that obviously exists today, and I I would argue is you know can, is is successful and is 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 surviving, yeah. and in some cases thriving on the on the local yeah. level. Talk it about is. that that idea that you had for that, and as you mentioned, you didn't have a lot of necessarily supporters of the idea. How did you get that idea uh, oh, to reality? actually known as Smallian's Folly. I got the idea when I was doing something I did really well in college, which was not pay attention. Um, <laughs> I was a student at USC. I, I joked, I got an alumni award there a few years ago. I've been on the board of trustees there for many, many years. And I got an alumni award a few years ago. And I said, if I applied to this place today, not only would they not admit me, they wouldn't even let me get a brochure because <laughs> I wouldn't want to waste the paper. But but I, I had the idea from college. And when we bought the Doubleday stations, we had only bought FM stations. And in New York, we got an AM station along with two of their FMs. And the Doubleday family owned the Mets. So they carried the Mets along with what was then America's biggest country music station. That's how it was built. Now, the fact it was in New York meant that it had a lot of listeners, but it was about the 30th ranked station in New York. So yeah. it wasn't really that competitive. So I wanted to do it and brought it up to our managers and everybody said, really stupid idea and voted it down. And I have a saying that you you can't lead where others won't follow. So I said, OK, we're not doing it. And the next day, Rick and Doyle Rose came into my office and said, look, we still think it's a stupid idea, but we're doing well everywhere else. So let's try it. And we did it in the first year, year and a half. It was awful. And then it turned around and then it became iconic. And I laugh now. Uh, people say, did you think there'd be 700 all sports radio stations when you started the station? And I said, I didn't think there'd be one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was funny when we merged with NBC, we were inheriting Don Imus and I knew Don's agent. We were meeting and Don had been in and out of rehab for four years. And I said, let me see if I get this right. We're, we're going to put a guy who's been in and out of rehab for four years on a radio station that's losing record amounts of money, anchored by the New York Mets, who have more drug problems than any team in the history of baseball. What could possibly go wrong with this combination? But it all worked. And Don never had another rehab problem, and the station uh, became iconic. 
Yeah, uh, you mentioned Don Imus, and you have worked with and 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 managed some uh, iconic names uh, in yeah. the business. What was it like working with Don Imus and your interactions uh, with him? I'm sure there there were a few interesting interactions along the way. Yeah, there were there were some. Uh, I could tell the one story. I get along well well with Don, but Don Don was a curmudgeon. Randy Bongard, who really came with us, who had been president of NBC and came over to us, had managed Randy and Howard Stern. I mean, Don and I, Howard Stern. And I said, what's the difference? He said, at, at 10 o'clock in the morning when Stern shows over, he'll be very clinical about what he did, why he did it. He said, Don just is a curmudgeon all the time. Uh, yeah. What you yeah. do with Don, you get 24 hours a day. He didn't quite use the word curmudgeon, but but that was Don. And, and we got along really well. I had one situation where I was in Seattle and, and – um, the family that bought the New York Mets were the Tisch family. They had just, I mean, I'm sorry, the New York uh, uh, Giants. Giants, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they had just bought them. They bought half the team. And Don he did a bit on a football player you may remember named Zeke Moat. Yeah, but yeah. Moat, Moat would, had been a, a tight end for the Patriots and, and been unceremoniously kicked out of Boston when he exposed himself to a female sports writer. Right. So the Giants pick him up, and Imus was incensed. And how can they do that? How can they bring this reprobate on the Giants? So he did a bit every morning where, you know, the, the Giants' wide or the Tish wives would come into the locker room after the game, and and they would, you know, Zeke Moat would expose himself to them, and they would shriek, and it was a whole yeah. bit. Did it. Yeah. And the Tishes were really angry. So they called my friend Marty Franks, who was head of all lobbying for CBS, and they wanted to take our license away. Oh, so wow. we're going to file against these people. And Marty said, look, I know Jeff. He's a friend. Let me call Jeff before we file. Now, we weren't going to lose our license for that, but they were very upset. Yeah. They called me. I'm in Seattle. And sort of the last days of Seattle, I wasn't having a lot of fun anyway. And and it was also, ironically, I was on the, base, the baseball's television committee, and we were kind of at war with CBS who carry the games. So I'm thinking, oh, boy, just what I need, another problem with the with CBS. The Tishes own CBS. They own the Giants. And he he, he said, what, do you, what can we do? And I said, look, if I go to Don, one of two things will happen. He'll either say, Jeff, I owe you one. I'll, I'll stop it. Or he'll say, those miserable SOBs, they went to the owner. Now I'm going to really bury him. And I said, Marty, I can't tell you how it'll go with Don. Yeah. And he said, I said, do me a favor, sleep on it and call me tomorrow and tell me what you want to do. Call me next day and said, let's go for it. Call Don. And I called Don. He was great. And he said, look, I understand. I think he took pity on me. I'm losing a lot of money on on, uh, baseball. Radio was in a recession. Uh, I'm a pariah in Seattle. So he dropped it. But uh, but Don was a great guy. I always loved him. Yeah. Yeah. What's your take on the state, not just of sports talk radio, but radio in general now? Uh, that's, I know, something, uh, you know, an industry you love, have loved uh, for many years. What is will traditional radio survive? It will survive. It will it will decline. There will always be a place for it. It's free. It's universally distributed product is more local. I think sports talk, news talk where people can find out what's going on in their community. It's easier than music formats where, let's face it. You know, if your local you know, top 40 stations playing 16 minutes of commercials and, and you can listen to Spotify and get two commercials an hour, it's a, it's a tough handle. And I think that's why music radio struggle more. But there'll always be a place for it. But it's uh, because it's local. I think the more local you are, the more entertaining people you have, 
the better you'll be. But it, there's no question. It's an industry in decline. They want to ask you about one of the titles uh, of one of the chapters of the book, How to Fix Television or Not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and well, I know you had uh, an, owned a number of television stations. In fact, yeah. you owned THI and Terre Haute for a while, I think, right? We owned THI. We owned 16 TV stations. I get into TV for a simple reason. I love TV. When radio went through deregulation, Stations that were you were peak, people were paying eight, nine, t- ten times for the station. In the first years, they went up to 20, 25 times. So we looked at it. Yeah. This is crazy. This math doesn't work. And by the way, it didn't work. And that's why 20 years later, you're dealing with the, ang- the overhang of all that debt. You have to read the book to learn all that. Crazy yeah. stuff. But we bought TV and we said, look, he, he, what's interesting at the time, TV had about 70 percent of viewing local stations. Mm-hmm. And yet they were getting no money from the cable companies. So it was sort of a classic cross-subsidy. You had people like ESPN in those days getting $5 a month or CNN getting a dollar a month or Hallmark Channel. And and the Channel 6, 8, 13, and, and, and 4, and 59 were getting zero. So we said, this is crazy. Congress passed a rule in, in 1992 that allowed the broadcasters to get paid. And six years later, they weren't getting anything. So we got into it and we said, these guys have to figure this out. And we did it. And I was very proud of what we did. We approved the stations a lot. But after seven or eight years, they still were nowhere. And and we knew they'd get it. But we had a chance to take a big profit. At the time, the company had a lot of debt. And we said, let's sell it. We had an idea of how they could get retransmission, which is explained in the book. I always had these great ideas that I love. My friend, Greg Nathanson, who's been on my board forever and used to run the Fox station, said, your problem is you have an idea that depends on the rationality of your peers, and they're never <laughs> rational. Yeah. So, yeah. so I didn't, but, we, but we loved it, and we got out of it. You were Randy Bongarden. When we decided to sell TV and stay in radio, Randy ran TV, and of course, he wanted me to stay in TV. And, and he said, you know, TV is better than radio. And I said, well, it's like parachuting from the Hindenburg and landing on the Titanic. They're both bad. But at any rate, we stayed radio, and I have no regrets. Yeah. Hey, much more with Jeff Smolian on uh, his great book, great stories in the book. I have to talk about baseball and that foray into uh, purchasing the Seattle Mariners, how that how that worked out, and uh, a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street Bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. All rights reserved. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Jeff Smolian, uh, broadcast pioneer, entrepreneur, uh, Indianapolis native. Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down is the name of his book that is chock full of uh, some great stories by an Indianapolis uh, native who has had uh, an amazing career. And, And Jeff, certainly one of the high profile moments or periods of your career was when you got into baseball and you uh, purchased the Seattle Mariners. 
what was the the impetus? What what got you interested? I know you're a sports fan, you're a sports guy. What was the interest uh, or the thing that made you jump at the Mariners? Well, we had always been turnaround guys. Every radio station we bought we needed to be turnaround, and some people in baseball knew that. Uh, Seattle had a big marketing problem. It had never had a winning season. It was kind of not beloved up there. And they, I loved it. I had been in Seattle. I thought it was the prettiest place I'd ever seen. So we sort of jumped at the chance. And, you know, I always said, the, the one I'd like to do anything in Seattle, but on their baseball team. But, we, you know, we did it. I, I, to this day, it's probably the best management we ever did. We invented things in ballparks that are commonplace today that nobody ever did. And, what was some, talk about some of those things. Well, we had, we had a kid's zone that we built in the outfield, uh-huh. singles nights. We had, you know, top 10 list. Situational music uh, was one of my favorites because I would pick songs, lines from songs that were relevant to baseball. You know, there was a soul called, song called Steal Away. When a guy would steal second base, we'd play <laughs> that. My yeah. favorite one, which didn't get us in trouble, but probably should have, uh, Louis Polonio was an old outfielder. And um, Polonia had, I think, was playing with the, the Yankees. But when he was in Milwaukee, he faced a statutory rape charge. So he comes up to bat and we play. She was just 17. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. We thought that would get us in trouble with baseball, but it didn't. But we had all sorts of fun. Um, Yeah. Did indoor fireworks and we invented the Mariner Moose, um, you know, and and just all sorts of fun things. They did a top 10 list. Top 10. I'll never forget. They did this behind my back. Top 10 pickup lines overheard at the ballpark. Now, in those days, I was definitely single. uh, Yeah. And the number one top pickup line was, hi, I'm Jeff. I own this team. Uh, <laughs> and they put it on the scoreboard and I went, oh, my oh boy. God. Yeah. But they did all, we did had all sorts of fun. A lot of, a lot of fun stuff. Well, talk about, because I know, I remember talking to you about this. I know it's in the book as well. But when you arrived in Seattle, you were a bit of a messiah. I mean, people, you, yeah. everybody loved you, right? You were, you were yeah. coming in, you're doing all these great things. Personable yeah. guy. Talk about the early days and how it ended, because things did change. Well, you know, I, I my, we had a right fielder named Jay Buhner, who if you're a Seinfeld fan, there's a Jay Buhner episode. And I'll never forget, I was given a tour of the ballpark one night, and I am walking into the right field bleachers, and people are standing cheering. And after the game, Jay said, I run into walls and kill myself, and nobody does anything. You make one appearance, and and they cheer you. And, and, I, and I, I said, you know, I spoke to every rotary group in the, in the Northwest. And the idea was, let's market the Mariners as new people, young people. And, and we really did well there. We, we sold more tickets. The problem was the, in, in Seattle, I, I always said all the people I vote for actually get elected in Seattle, and they have no interest in helping the ballpark. Uh-huh. And the corporate community was just indifferent. It was just an unloved thing. I'll never forget, I went to Toronto, and my friend Paul Beeston ran the Blue Jays, and we're getting a tour. And when you, you, you get a thing called ballpark envy when you go to a new ballpark. And you see all the areas they have revenues. And we were in a what they used to call the, the kingdom, the, the the tomb of the unknown baseball team, because uh, it was all concrete. And the Sky Dome was like the eighth wonder of the world. And I'm yeah. seeing all these areas where there's revenue opportunities. And the last thing I see on their giant diamond vision is like a two-minute ad for Microsoft. And I said, my gosh, what is that? I said, what do they pay you? And he comes back and he said, well, between tickets and suites and the ad, pay us about $350,000 a year. So I caught my friend Gary, who was president of the team. I said, what does Microsoft pay us? Yeah. And he said, comes back and said, well, they buy four season tickets and they have a hackers. I pay us $15,000 a year. 
I said, okay, eight miles away from our ballpark yeah. is the world headquarters, and I'm in a foreign country. And we talked to the Microsoft people, and they said, look, people in Toronto care about baseball. Nobody cares about baseball in Seattle. So it was, it, I mean, I could tell you, there's so many stories. Uh, yeah. Well, I've got time for one more. I was yeah. giving us yeah. specific leaders in Tacoma it, to a group of accountants. And before the speech, the head accountant who was introducing me said, hey, uh, you know what you guys ought to do? You ought to run trains from downtown Tacoma to the ballpark. Yeah. And I said, yeah, we're trying. We're working with Amtrak, trying to get it done. He said, you know, they do that with the Seahawks and it works great. He said, it's so great. You get on downtown Tacoma and, and it drops you off right at the King Street station, right next to the Kingdo. It's perfect. How far do the trains go from where you play? And I said, we're right there. And he said, no, you don't understand. The Kingdom is where the Seahawks play and the King Street station's right there. Where do, how far is the closest train station to your ballpark? And I said, right there. He said, what do you mean? I said, we play in the same building. He said, I'll be damned. Now I'm thinking, thinking this team has been here for years and years. Yeah. And one of the civic leaders doesn't know where the major league baseball team plays. Holy so cow. there are a thousand stories like that. And I loved it, but we didn't have the money, Gary, you know, got a collusion payment and the team was losing a lot of money and I, we just couldn't afford it. Base radio went through a downturn and we, we were not, I used to joke that to own the Mariners or the, or the Kansas city Royals, you had to be a billionaire. To own the Yankees or the Dodgers, you, if you had a paper route, you could fund it. So we, yeah. we couldn't. And we said, look, we, we did it for three years and we put it up for sale. And Seattle had to either buy it, find a buyer, which they did. They found Nintendo or yeah. we would have sold it or moved it. So when you got out of baseball, I, I know you tell the story that you were basically offered an opportunity to buy an NBA franchise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What was that yeah. about? David Stern came to you. Talk about uh, talk about that, because I think he and others. We're impressed by a lot of the things you did actually in Seattle and you had yeah. that opportunity. I worked with David on a lot of TV things and we used to, we sort of understood the business and understood where TV was going. I get into baseball because I said regional cable is going to be the economic engine that fuels it, which it has for the last 30 years. So David said, look, I need, I, I need a favor. I need somebody to fix the Houston Rockets. You put up whatever you money, money you need. I'll get you the rest. You own the franchise. I need you to fix this team. And I thought about it and I said, David, I love you, but I got to go fix Amos. And I turned him down. My friend Jerry Reinsdorf said, in the history of the world, that it's the single worst business decision ever. Wow. Yeah. I said, I think IBM not developing software was number one, but it was certainly second or third. But I did what I wanted to do. My, you know, my life has always been Amos. And yeah. And sure, you know, there's no question. I have a favorite saying, if one of 10 things had happened, my company would be a thousand times bigger. And if another one of 10 things had happened, I'd be sweeping streets somewhere, Gary. So yeah. I'm sweeping streets. My life turned out pretty darn well. Yeah, I, I, I agree. As you look at the many decisions you have made over your career, is there one that you would identify as your worst decision or a bad decision? Well, there's so many. Uh, the, 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 certainly the David Stern, you know, I think yeah. Sam Zell came to me and um, Sam and I met. Uh, and at the time, Sam had J-Core and he wanted to merge it with Emmis. And the guy who ran J-Core said, look, I'll, if Jeff runs it, I'll work for him. I'll be happy. And I knew Sam and I knew that, you know, I said, Sam, if I want to make the most money, I do this. Because I know that in two years, you're going to say this is topped out. We're out. But I like what I do, and this is my life, and I like the people. So if I want to make the most money, I do it. I turned him down. Sure enough, two years later, he sold it for like, I don't know, $3 billion. I mean, and I kind of, you know, every time I saw him, he'd say, told you. 
as <laughs> all right. Yeah. You're David Stern too. You yeah. should have you should have taken the Rockets. But there are a lot of things. But I, I I'm just one of those people who has no regrets. Yeah, life has been very, very good to me, and I have no regrets. Yeah. How about on the flip side? You've made a lot of good decisions. Is, yeah. is there one that 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 stands out to you? Yeah. Hiring great people. I have hired great people yeah. uh, that I've loved being with. Rick Cummings, and you know, Rick and I have been together almost 50 years. And I've just I've hired wonderful people. And it's and I've, I'm proud of the culture. It's a very uh, collaborative culture. Uh, and and I think that's allowed us to survive where when you look at the American radio industry, everybody's either gone bankrupt or is on the yeah. verge of it. We were able to come through that and pay off all that debt. Uh, and emerged not unscathed, but certainly, you know, capable of going forward. And I think that's a tribute to the people I've attracted. Yeah, you, you've hired and, and, and been involved with a lot of high profile people. We talked about uh, uh, Don Imus earlier, David Letterman, many yeah. years ago here in Indianapolis, who yeah. uh, got on to a bit of, uh, of fame. Talk yeah. about that, because he was, uh, you know, way back then. Channel 13 weather guy. He was a funny guy back then. What, what yeah. are your remembrances of, of bringing David on board? My brother said, you got to hire Letterman. Uh, and I and I had knew, known him and watched him on 13, and we hired him to do a talk show. What was funny is, this was a, a station on 1590. It was doing news talk and sports. Uh, the average age uh, of, of a news talk sports station listener in those days was somewhere just south of rigor mortis. So we had older listeners and we had a bunch of 20, 25 year olds running the place as with David and I are exact same age. Yeah. And I'm, my favorite story that I've told that I, I, I still marvel at. I came back from lunch one day and a guy called me and he said, older fellow, said, uh, what do you do about Letterman? He's a communist. And I said, well, why do you say he's a communist? And he said, I called him and I said, I know there are communists in Carmel. And do you have any idea what he said? I said, I don't know what he said. Yeah. I was eating lunch. And he said, you got to give them Carmel. You know, the football team's lousy. You never find a parking space. They're always tearing up the roads. So give the communists Carmel and hold the line at Fishers. <laughs> and that was David. I mean, David and we had we had one old guy who'd call up all the time. And he was always, and you know, when you've got a talk station on 1590 in the diet, you don't get that many callers, you yeah, know? Right, right. So we would get the same people. And, and this one old guy was always just off point in the name. And David would do sound effects, explosions and mooing cows and barking dogs. And it was just hilarious. I mean, you know, it just, I'm looking out at the monument and one day uh, he announced the city of Indianapolis had sold the monument to Guam for a 300 foot celery stick. <laughs> and people called and said, we can't get rid of our monument. It's such a great monument. And he said, yeah, but we need more greenery downtown. The celery <laughs> stock will look very nice down there. So David, David was brilliant. That, that is good stuff. Uh, as, as we wrap up, uh, Jeff, I, I think one thing that comes through very clearly uh, from you is your love of Indianapolis. Uh, you, yeah. you grew up here. You went away to school to Southern Cal and kind of thought, did you think you were going to start your career out in California and, and got back yeah. here? Yeah, I, I was one of those people who said, now you're never going back home. My yeah. dad talked me into it. He said, look, you want to be an entrepreneur. You want to start a radio com company, come back home. And he talked me into it. He and my mom lobbied me. And I came back. And after the first six months, I said, what have I done? And after six months, I just fell in love with the place. And I've been very, very proud of it. I've been involved in so many things here. 
And, you know, it, people tease me because our biggest assets were New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and Washington. And people said, why are you still there? And I go, this is home. And uh, I like it. Uh, you know, I my wife is always after me. Why aren't we spending all the summer in Nantucket or why don't we set the winter in Florida? And I go, you know, I, I, when I'm out of my office for two weeks, I miss it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I love it here. And I've been I've been very fortunate, made so many friends and so. It's listen. Home is always home, Gary, as you know. That's right, and I tell you, Indianapolis and Indiana certainly are the the better for it. Jeff, really been a pleasure catching up with you. The book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. I'm telling you, it is a great read, chock full of some of the great stories you heard and many more. And Jeff, uh, again, uh, personally, thank you for your support of what I've done over the years, your friendship, and what you've done for Indianapolis and Indiana because it is. It is substantial. You've made the uh, community a much better place. Gary, thanks. And by the way, that's mutual. Uh, you have done a wonderful job, and I'm very, very proud of uh, all these years. 25 is a pretty great milestone. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Jeff Smolium, my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.